Hey crew, before we get started today, I want to let you know that our Tee Public store is currently on sale. Click the link in our show notes or go to tpublic.com forward slash user forward slash just enough trope, all one word, to get 30% off t-shirts, sweatshirts, laptop cases, phone cases, mugs, etc. and etc. Even etc. is 30% off. And they all feature Trek art, including our Janeway design, well-behaved women seldom make Admiral. Might make a nice pairing with who I'm talking with today, Stuart Hollis and Thad Hayes of the Delta Flyer podcast. Join me to talk a little first season TNG. We had a great time doing it. They also have a Stargate podcast, and we ended up talking a bit about Stargate and a few off-trek topics. You can find those parts of our conversation on our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash E-I-S-T-P-O-D. Subscribers to our Patreon get access to outtakes from our guest interviews, as well as episode recaps and commentaries and live shows and sneak peeks of upcoming episodes. So check that out at patreon.com forward slash E-I-S-T-P-O-D. You might have noticed that this is a two-show day. We've got our technical issues ironed out now, and I didn't want to get off the schedule. So go ahead and enjoy our supplemental episode with Dr. Mohamed Noor, where we talk about biology and genetics and Trek, and then dive right into my talk with Stuart and Thad, you lucky so-and-sos. Uh, next week, we'll be back to just one episode. But if you're craving more enterprising individuals, check out our subscriber content at patreon.com forward slash EISTpod, or join us tomorrow, that's Thursday night at 9 p.m., Central Time when we go live with another episode of Discoverage, our Star Trek Discovery recap and review show. Our guest on the show will be Mo of Sound of Cosplay, who has a... Mm, top-notch Stamets look, and recently wrote an article about cosplay and getting to meet Anthony Rapp that was on StarTrek.com. So tune in tomorrow and check that out. And now, let's get underway. It's worked so far, but we're not out yet. I want to know what you're thinking. There are some things you can't hide. I want to know what you're feeling. Tell me what's on your mind. Hailing Frequencies Open, and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, the Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Aaron Coker, a.k.a. Caliban, and for the pleasure-loving, half-naked joggers of Rubicon 3, I have one word, athleisure. I'm joined on this episode by Stuart Hollis and Thad Haight. Stuart and Thad are the hosts of the Delta Flyer podcast, a weekly show about Star Trek Voyager, and they're also the hosts of Stargate Weekly, a Stargate podcast. Stuart and Thad, welcome to the show. It's hey, what's going on? Oh, I just said it's glad to be here. I'm, it's you want good to do that to individually? I'm... <laughs> uh, permission to come aboard granted to both of you. Today we'll be talking about Justice, the seventh episode of the first season of Star Trek The Next Generation. Starfleet's mission is to seek out new life and new civilizations and to discover the unknown. But discovery can be dangerous, not solely for the discoverer, but also for the discovered. In the words of the great Dr. Ian Malcolm, discovery is a violent, penetrative act that scars what it explores. To combat this, Starfleet adopted the Prime Directive, a rule that none of its officers could interfere with the development of a species. But that rule is often unevenly applied, and indeed many Trek stories directly challenge the morality and feasibility of its application. 
but we'll talk about that a little later in the show. First, gentlemen, whenever I have new guests on the show, I always ask about their backstory with Trek, how they became a Star Trek fan. Uh, Stuart, why don't you start and tell me how you discovered Star Trek? Well, I mean, you know, I was aware of Star Trek uh, growing up. Um, I, I think that, like, my growing up, I think my big introduction to Star Trek would have been Voyage Home. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, obviously, as with most American middle-class families, the TV is always on, um, but it was seldom on Star Trek, but the whole family enjoyed Voyage Home, and so we definitely watched that a lot. Um, I I never really watched any of the shows as they aired, except for maybe Enterprise, Mm. Uh, but, like, certainly not TNG or Deep Space Nine, and only bits and pieces of Voyager as it aired. I caught most of Voyager on rerun. So how did it transform for you from something that was pleasant and on to something that you were really looking at? Because it's sci-fi and sci-fi is rad. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) I agree. Thad, what about you? So for me, uh, with Star Trek, it was love at first sight. Um, When I was... I was in first grade, and my sister turned on TNG. I don't know what episode it was. All I know is Worf was mad at something, so that could have been, like, half the episodes. Yeah, that uh, could be a lot of them. <laughs> but but from there, like, I became, very quickly became obsessed with Star Trek. I was the kid in school that was, you know, that everybody knew and nobody wanted to actually admit they knew that was super into Star Trek. And <laughs> I have been my entire life. Don't say uh, beam me up or con around this guy because you're going to get an earful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Did you do anything else like um, Star Trek role-playing games or anything uh, really nerdy like that? I've actually never um, played a Star Trek role-playing game, mostly because I never had any friends that would want to do it with me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Well, this uh, isn't supposed to be a tragedy, but it's turning into one already. <laughs> <laughs> As, as an ad- I'm, not, I'm not saying I didn't have friends. I'm saying I didn't have friends who would want to do Star Trek role-playing okay. with me. All right, so you had friends with self-respect. I see the difference there, yeah. Yes, there we go. <laughs> Whereas I have none. Well, as a duo, you guys host the Delta Flyer podcast, uh, which is an episode-by-episode look at Star Trek Voyager. Why did you decide to examine Voyager specifically? So Thad and I have actually known each other for oh, 15 years? Forever. Yeah, at least. Yeah, uh, and about 10 years ago... Uh, we were both in our hometown with very few other people to spend time with. And so I spent a ton of time over at Thad's apartment. And, uh, you know, Thad being Thad, Star Trek was on. And I think at one point I, well, almost certainly more than one point, I, while watching an episode of Voyager, I had said something to the effect of, you know, I've seen every episode of Voyager. And then that proved me wrong. And we watched through the whole show. So for us, it's, you know, it, you know, obviously we'd already known each other for a few years at that point, but all that time we'd spent together 10 years ago, and then obviously watching Voyager together, and then also Stargate SG-1, which is what formed the basis of our other podcast, uh, is really kind of like why we have still stuck together after all these years. So it's, it's foundational for us. Mm-hmm. 
I think a lot of fans are of the opinion that Voyager is where the wheels kind of start to come off uh, in terms of Trek storytelling at that time. And that might be debatable, uh, but you can't deny that at its core, Voyager is really like the most Trek of premises. The idea that everywhere we look, it's a new horizon. It's the kind of thing that Captain Picard would go nuts for, you know, let's see what's out there. Uh, What would you say to somebody who's not a Voyager fan or has resisted watching it because of its reputation? Uh, I would say that you should probably give it a second try uh, because, yes, there are it. There are certainly things that you can say that Voyager could have done better. Um, it very much, I think, would have benefited from today's more serialized television than uh, the episodic stuff that it had in the, in the 90s. But on the other hand, there's some really great sci-fi episodes that mm. the episodic-style storytelling really lends to that it might not have done in a serialized version. Some of the best like one-shot sci-fi-type stories on Star Trek happened in Voyager, in my opinion. Stuart, do you know anybody who specifically has said, you know, I'm not going to watch Voyager, I hear it's terrible? Actually, no. Uh, most of the people that I've spoken to in, like, a nerd environment, you know, a safe space where you can say things like, <laughs> I host two sci-fi podcasts. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> if they're familiar with Voyager, I've never heard them give any sort of negative opinion on it. And, you know, in fact, it's more often the opposite, where it's, oh, man, I always loved Voyager. So I, I I have actually not heard too many people give a dissenting opinion. Well, that's great. I, I wonder if it's a generational thing, because I know some younger fans who are younger than I am uh, who really like Enterprise. And for me, like the generation that I'm from and the generations, you know, we're talking about are just slices of, of decades here. Not that big, but we're all like, oh, Enterprise, no good. Don't do that. But that's what people had, you know, when they were growing up. And so that's what they expect and that's what they enjoy. I think Enterprise is also a lot better than people give it credit for. Yeah. And on a rewatch, if you, especially if you binge it, I think it, for the most part, holds up. Well, we're open to any show on this show, so that's that's our rule. Um, as Voyager explores the Delta Quadrant, uh, they're always finding danger, but they also find scientific wonders and friendly races and sci-fi stories. In the Stargate franchise, however, it seems that the universe is a lot more dangerous than we realize, and there's many godlike aliens that would seek to control the cosmos. Is that accurate? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's more, it's also, more of a military fiction scenario. And they definitely don't have a prime directive on Stargate. <laughs> right. <laughs> Now, uh, I'm the uh, hypothetical person that I mentioned before about Voyager uh, with the Stargate universe and that I've seen the James Spader movie, but I haven't really seen any of the other episodes. So can you guys recommend a good place to start uh, or some standout episodes for somebody somebody looking to get into Stargate? Oh, boy. What was that episode we were just talking about a few weeks ago where you and I both called out that this was like Um, quintessential? Dead Man Switch. Yes. Yeah. uh, Dead Man Switch would be an excellent place to start. Uh, it's in season three. Yes. In fact, it, it just, I would it, say season three of Stargate SG One is a good place to start in general. Okay. It really hits. It really hits its stride in season three. Like that's not to say that one and two are terrible, and you definitely like shouldn't skip them. There are some very standout episodes in both seasons, but season three is when it flips from this is a an okay show that has some solid episodes too. This is a solid show that sometimes has okay episodes. Okay. Star Trek shows 
tend to do the same thing when they hit season three. So yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you should be familiar with the phenomenon. They find their feet. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, are you guys watching Star Trek Discovery right now? Yes. Did you? Uh, so what was the last one that was on last night? Um, so have you seen The Brightest Star? Yeah, I just watched it last night. Oh, these are the short tracks, or did the new the season short, start? And I missed. Yeah, it. the short tracks. Yeah, no. <laughs> the new season's not uh, for a little bit, but yeah. Yeah, no, I, no. I was like, I was concerned when you're saying like, are you watching it now? Like, has it? Did it start again? Oh, no. Did I miss did this I miss somehow? That's next month. <laughs> <laughs> what do you guys think of Star Trek Discovery and how it compares to the classic Trek series? I think that it is exactly what we can expect about Star Trek made in with 21st century television because it's going to be serialized like it is because yeah. that's just how TV is these days. Yeah. Uh, and I think I, I really enjoyed Discovery. I mean, as with everything uh if you've ever listened to my podcast you'll know that i will pick nits in anything uh but uh there are things there are certain things that i didn't enjoy as much as others but i thought overall that it was a solid show and i thought the acting was great the storylines were good the the effects were phenomenal yeah i'm always impressed it's not something that i really look for specifically like I, i want this to look really good but i often find myself trying to pick my jaw back up just with how good Discovery looks sometimes. Mm-hmm. Well, I think also that the writing is a level above your average Trek. Um, yes, I would agree with that. Yeah, and I, that comes back to the TV of the 21st century thing. Yeah, like the, the writing and the dialogue is definitely a step above. Like, it, it's... Basically, like Discovery's like minimum level of writing and dialogue is above any other Trek's average. I would say. Uh, like, I'm I'm not saying that you couldn't pick an episode from any given Trek other Trek series and find better writing or better dialogue or anything like that. But I feel that Discovery has a a, a minimum level that is way above average it just it definitely flows um just you know the episode we're going to talk about today is fairly early in the run of tng and there are just Mm -hmm. there are there are holes you could drive a a truck through in terms of like the cues and things we're just waiting for things to happen or somebody to say or do something and they're putting a lot of weight on perhaps the vistas of the half-naked joggers or just (laughs) things that we're supposed to do other than forward the story and you're just sitting there kind of going is this wow? The cues are are really late here. Yeah, I was gonna make that same point. I was gonna say, especially if you compare it to the writing of this episode. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was looking back at I was looking back at episodes of this show, and this is the earliest TNG episode that we've covered. We've done a few first and second season episodes, and we've talked about some of the changes the series has undergone. Um, but as it developed, you know, this is. This is pretty much your solid 1987 Trek right here with all that entails. If given your own preference, would you want to watch a random TNG episode from the first half of TNG or the second? I would say first half because I've actually only seen TNG all the way through once. Mm-hmm. And the first half I'm particularly spotty on. And I think it would be good to revisit some of <laughs> okay. those. Sure. Dad, what about you? Uh, that's hard to say because I feel like... Like, TNG was at its best probably in the fourth and fifth season. Yeah. But there's some really good stuff from the beginning. Uh, and if I, I'd say that over the past 20 years, my rewatch 
I've tended, if I want to watch a specific episode, it's tended to be the second half. So I would probably actually go with first half now, too, just because yeah. <laughs> I haven't, like Stuart, I haven't, I'm not as familiar with those episodes as I am with the later ones. Yeah. There are so many things, too. There's a quality to the early uh, episodes where I have to kind of push myself to remember what they're about. And not just because I saw them a while ago, but like the episode Coming of Age, like, I hear that title and I go, wait, what is that about again? Is that the one where Wesley's trying to get into Starfleet Academy or what's the B plot? Like I, you know, there's, they don't have the same construction where you go, oh, I get it. Jean Grey comes on board and she's the perfect wife and she falls in love with the card. Yeah. You know, I get what the shot is of this episode, but there's a more sort of rangy quality about them, which probably would get them marks off when evaluating them against something like Discovery, which is very driven, but it's kind of got that sit and marinate in it sort of sci-fi feel to it that sometimes, sometimes you want that. And I think, uh, I guess this is my my theme for the night. I think season one of TNG is, as with every, everything else I've said, I think it's maybe judged a little harshly. <laughs> uh, granted, this episode is not a good one. Um, okay, <laughs> but, but there are some there are some good moments in in season one of TNG, and I and I actually really enjoy. And you see that some in this episode, they have the cool. Uh, the lighting in season one was much different than later. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, like, you actually see shadows on the yeah. Enterprise, which you'd never see after season one. No. <laughs> and, and I think, I think like, some of the cinematography in season one looks cool. Like, it's more dramatic. And, it, and some of the episodes, um, Arsenal of Freedom is one of my favorite early Star Trek episodes. Uh, another good one is uh, Home Soil. Uh, mm. There's just, there are some good things in season one. Well, you'll get a chance to try and reiterate that as we go on today, because we are talking about the Next Generation episode, Justice. It's the seventh episode of the first season of Star Trek The Next Generation. It first aired on the 9th of November of 1987. The teleplay for this episode is by Worley Thorne. Prior to this episode, Thorne was, uh, wrote teleplays for TV shows like Dallas and Charlie's Angels, and he wrote six episodes of Fantasy Island. Uh, Justice is his last writing credit, but he went on to serve two terms as the governor of the Academy of Television Arts and Sciences. He also wrote the story art Unheard Memories Suite for the aborted Star Trek Phase Two in the 70s. And it's funny, the full text of that story is actually available online. I'll leave a link to it in the show notes. Uh, that Scenario features the ship visiting a world ruled by women, which is a concept that was recycled for the first season episode, uh, Angel One. The story for the episode comes from Thorne and Ralph Willis, and Willis is the nom de plume of John D.F. Black. Black was a producer and screenwriter who also wrote for Charlie's Angels, but over his 30-year career, he wrote for shows like The Untouchables, Mission Impossible, The Virginian, and many other shows of the 60s and 70s. He also wrote the screenplay for the film Trouble Man and co-wrote the screenplay for the film Shaft, and he received a 1965 Writers Guild Award for his teleplay for an episode of Mr. Novak. And that's how he met Gene Roddenberry. Gene Roddenberry offered him a job after that, and Black became a writer and producer slash story editor for the original series. Uh, he wrote The Naked Time for the original series. We have covered that on the show. He also received a story credit for The Naked Now, which was TNG's season one revisit of that premise. And Black left the show early in the first season of TOS because he felt intimidated having to rewrite the work of other writers. And he also wasn't comfortable with Roddenberry and his practice of liberally rewriting the work of the show's contributors. Uh, Justice itself was a victim of that, and we'll talk about that in a bit. And he also sadly passed away very recently on November 29th of 2018. So this show is dedicated to him, even though we might have some bad things to say about this episode, we still respect his work. 
Uh, this episode was directed by James L. Conway. He's a veteran director of all four post-TOS pre-discovery series, and Justice was his first directing gig for Trek. The start date for this episode is 41255.6, and your assignment, Thad and Stuart, if you can, is to give us a turbo-lift pitch of Justice that is a 25-word synopsis of the episode, and you can break it up however you want. Well, I actually did, because um, Stuart asked me to pick a TNG episode, and I asked whether he wanted good or bad but fun and he chose bad <laughs> so but fun fault. okay <laughs> and the, the synopsis that i gave him for this one was uh the enterprise visits a planet filled with uh scantily clad hedonists and wesley gets sentenced to death for trampling some flowers okay i think that works Stuart, would you approve uh yeah i would try to find a way to throw the god in there somewhere <laughs> also <God>. otherwise <laughs> yes and yes. yeah and also god is there <laughs> and god clearly needs a starship in this episode too yeah but <laughs> <laughs> yeah that exactly he's, he, well he's got one yeah uh what does he need with baby oil that's my question um <laughs> oh. here's here's some interesting facts from the memory banks about this episode this was the first script to be commissioned after the pilot of tng was written by roddenberry and dc fontana uh, that was meeting at farpoint of course later changed to encounter at farpoint but difficulties in adapting it pushed it until later in the season for production. Um, I mentioned previously that this script was rewritten by Roddenberry, and it was also uh, rewritten by Thorne, which is why Black chose to be credited under a pseudonym. I don't know if you guys have heard the original draft sort of pitch for Black's version of the show, but in his version of the script, uh, it was going to be set on the colony world of Laroth, and there was going to be pun punishment zones, which were originally used to um, control anarchy, kind of like the guy describes in Justice. Um, but now they're used for any offense, except there's a societal elite that's sort of immune to this punishment. And in the pitch, a um, Starfleet officer happens upon a crime scene. And while he's defending two children, he's killed by a policeman from the colony, who's then killed immediately by his partner for that offense. Kind of a domino effect. Hmm. So Picard has to decide whether to help uh, this group of rebels on the colony overthrow the totalitarian regime. So it changed quite a bit. I want to watch that episode. Yeah. <laughs> Does the original script end with everyone missing one eye? Ah, um, yeah, that's uh, that, that's uh, perfect for the 60s, I think. That, that would slot right in next to the uh, black on one side of the face, white on the other. Yeah, that that's uh, that was also, that was exactly what had popped into my head, the, that exact episode when you're asking uh, about Discovery as compared to classic Trek. Yeah. Because, <laughs> like, no, 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 like, Discovery is not nearly as in your face with its parables. Right. Oh, no, we have to swap eyes with these guys. I don't right. get it. Yeah. Uh, this episode is the first to use location filming after the holodeck scene in the pilot. The exterior of the Edo building is the Tillman Water Reclamation Plant in L.A. Starfleet Academy. Yeah, right. It's Starfleet Academy as well. And the part where Wesley falls into the flowers was shot at the Huntington Library in Pasadena. And according to Will Wheaton, who has written and spoke more than a little on this and other TNG episodes, <laughs> and I'll be quoting him a little bit in this episode, uh, the Tillman plant was directly under the flight path of the local Van Nuys Airport. Uh, leading to extensive redubbing of the actor's dialogue. They had to redo all the dialogue in the studio. And he also noted that because of how often TNG would return to these locations, like for Starfleet Academy, they were often compared to um, the Vasquez Rocks by the crew, uh, which, of course, many of the TOS episodes like Arena and the outdoor things were filmed. 
Uh, this episode also features a guitar-like instrument that is very similar to the one used by the character Adam in the third season TOS episode, The Way to Eden, the one with the space hippies. Uh, this prop, or one like it, would be seen again in the second season episode, When the Bow Breaks. Um, don't remember that. <laughs> I'm, I'm assuming one of the um, the Irish colonists is playing it. Probably, yeah. If you remember that When the that Bow episode. Breaks is also not a very good episode. Yeah, ambitious but flawed, <laughs> we'll say. <laughs> Uh, the guest stars for this episode include Brenda Backey as Ravon. Backey's a film and television actress who appeared in the films Hot Shots 2, L.A. Confidential, and Under Siege 2. I don't want to tell tales out of school, but according to Will Wheaton in his 2006 TV Squad review of this episode, uh, he says that Michael Dorn spent a little time playing with Backey during the production of the episode. That's all I heard. And Jay Loudon appears as Liator. I think that's how you say it. Uh, Loudon's an actor with many TV guest appearances in the 80s. After 1990, he retired from acting and took up teaching, and he's currently teaching acting and stage combat at Metro State College in Denver. This episode also features actor Josh Clark in the role of Khan, that's C-O-N-N, an unnamed tactical ensign. He is a frequent guest star on primetime TV, and he actually played the role of Tom Hanks's character's father in the feature film Big, but all the scenes were cut from the film. He would go on to play Lieutenant Joe Carey in Star Trek Voyager. Uh, he's the guy who gets passed up for Chief Engineer for yep. Bolana Taurus. And After he gets getting his, punched in the nose. Gets his nose broken later, yep. Uh, that doesn't stop him from conspiring with her to use Sakarian technology to try and transport Voyager home in the Voyager episode Prime Factors, which is another episode that fe- uh, features the Prime Directive and we covered on this show. And I think I referred to him as Diet O'Brien in that show. <laughs> okay. Similar look, similar job, a <laughs> little thinner. I was definitely getting some flashes of Prime Factors while watching this episode. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, I think that that's, uh, this episode, um, Justice, of course, Prime Factors, and Who Watches the Watchers are a nice little triptych on the Prime Directive. A lot of fans think that that character, uh, well, Carrie, uh, is this character. Do you guys think that this is Carrie and he's just been promoted and moved to Voyager? It's possible. But I mean, and it's also possible he went from tactical to engineering. But right, same shirt. I mean, he's got the shirt. I think it's probably not the same character, in the because I think just uh, it's probably just a lookalike. I mean, Voy- uh, we later uh, the Enterprise also has a Vulcan crew member who looks identical to a Vulcan crew member with a different but similar name on Voyager. So right. Yeah, um, and Worf's uh, baby mama is also Dr. Salar or whatever. So Yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's a lot of that so. in Paramount Productions, yeah. Uh, apparently, uh, Clark's role was intended to be a recurring one on TNG, but according to the actor, the director of the episode, quote, hated him. Uh, and I can kind of see it. Like, uh, he's, you know, I don't know if he took the last bear claw from craft services or whatever, but his, his acting is a little big for a background player. He's a little, uh, he's doing a little extra. I can't remember any specific lines that he has, but it's just like, I can't believe what's going on. I can't. There's an invisible ship out there. Usually it's a little more reserved. Uh, TNG had this problem a lot in the early seasons. They'd always try to add new characters uh, like Clark or they'd bring Terry Hatcher on. Or I don't know if you guys remember the klutzy intern who spills coffee on Jordy. Yeah. Uh, Sonia Gomez. Yeah, I think they realized eventually that, you know, we've got seven actors. This ensemble is probably enough for what we need. Uh, No Cousin Olivers on this one. Let's talk about the episode itself. Um, The Prime Directive uh, is Starfleet's most sacred rule, but it's a rule that seems made to be broken, or at least bent in the service of drama. 
And I mean, we could give a list of all the episodes that mention or deal with Prime Directive issues, but it would span every iteration of the series, including the animated series. In fact, I think the first official wording of the Prime Directive or General Order 1 um, comes from the animated series episode, The Magics of Megas 2. And that wording is, of course, no starship may interfere with the normal development of any alien life or society. But right off the bat, I see a problem with that. I mean, in that Heisenbergian way, you influence something by observing it. So any exploratory action has the potential to interfere with an alien society, whether or not they're warp capable. And that's the usual restriction that gets put on contact scenarios. Yeah, that's actually my big problem right from the beginning, because these people are do not certainly do not appear as though they are warp capable. I wonder about that, because... The um, the Leator, the, the, the guy talks about how everything was chaos before, um, presumably hundreds of thousands of years ago, and they all figured it out with, you know, a little bit of Leith and Jack. And I wonder if they were a culture that had a, a certain level of achievement that sort of slid to this point, uh, or if they, uh, as the episode sort of suggests, were possibly planted there by God, and not that we get a, a real name for it. Uh, in the same way that the Enterprise is planting colonies as well. I feel like they were maybe trying to make a parallel there, and it just didn't really get um, stepped on. Yeah, I was wondering about the tech level of um, of these people. Like, they have... Like, we, we never seen the overt technology on the yeah. part of the Edo. But, I mean, that building they had, I mean, obviously it was picked because it looks cool. But... How would they have built that? I'm I'm always interested in episodes like this to see more of who are the sanitation workers in this society. Like you're yeah. painting for us this perfect idyllic, you know, libertarian hedonistic society where <laughs> wait wait it, a minute they're libertarian. They can do anything they want so long <laughs> as they don't like hurt someone else or step on the flowers. Right. It's anarchy with uh, summary execution. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, I, mean, I, I feel I, like I libertarians the, would be okay with stepping on flowers. But. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, suppose, yeah, I suppose like once the state starts killing people, the libertarian idea goes, gets thrown out the window. But <laughs> yeah. anyway, the, yeah, yeah. but like, like here or, or Prime Factors or really, I mean, like, like pick an episode. You never get to see the like the people who are behind the scenes, you know, like, Keep, uh, keeping the trains on time, as it were. Yeah, that's why it seems like a weird planet to set a prime directive story on. Um, I mean, like you mentioned, like where's their technology? Why are they even talking to these people uh, other than they've got a lot of hats to drop and they want some shore leave? Um, they don't seem to have any technology. But then, like you said, there's buildings and there's all these things. So while all the people are playing with balls and jogging or whatever, who's actually washing the windows and planting the flowers? Yeah, it just wouldn't have been nice to see Someone who wasn't jogging, playing catch, making out, or, you know, oiling people down, doing some sort of labor in the background. Right, right. Other than the, uh, what, were the, what was the name of the justice people? The, oh, the, uh, the mediators. mediators, yeah. Yeah, they were, you know, doing their job. But other than that, yeah. The two guys that look like a uh, WWF tag team from the 80s come in. Do you think that there's some incident in the Federation's past that chiefly influenced them developing a prime directive? I mean, besides all of TOS and maybe, I don't know, Dear Doctor from Enterprise. 
I think, yes, there absolutely had to have been some instances where things went wrong and they realized they need to have guidelines to prevent that from happening in the future. Yeah, we don't need any more gangster planets. Exactly. What do you think about the idea of having a prime directive, like, period? Do you think it's really feasible? It seems like, I know this is for, you know, it's a TV drama and we need conflict, but do you think that any crew could ever really hold to it like they're supposed to? I feel like it can't be that hard to stick to it if they were actually really serious about it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, well, we've detected another M-class planet not too far away. Oh, cool, let's check it out. Oh, it's inhabited. Oh, they don't even have satellites. Moving on. (laughs) right but what if their planet is undergoing some kind of seismic catastrophe and they're all going to die in two weeks then that is part of their natural evolution unless there's a what would be like obviously like secondary comes after what would be instead of prime see and that's where the prime director gets a little hinky because sometimes sometimes the prime director says that they have to let them die and there's plenty of episodes where that happens but then there's other instances like the very first episode of Star Trek Discovery, where they go to the planet and blast open a, a well for <laughs> pre-industrial people right. so that they don't die. Yeah, and they're just walking around, and yeah, yeah. I, I, well, I mean, we just praised Discovery, and, and I'll continue to praise it, but that, that did seem a little weird. Maybe there were circumstances that we didn't know about. Um, there's, you know, there are exceptions that are sort of seen as, like, okay... Um, I was trying to add up all the times that the Prime Directive has been addressed or violated, and across all the <laughs> across all the series, <laughs> there's a lot. I think in the Drumhead, um, the one Admiral uh, who's going after Picard says that he's he's broken it nine times in like three and a half years, and he still has a job, so that seems okay. But like you know, if it's if it's pen pals, I think if there's like a di- distress call, you can go in. I love the one where it's like if there's been a previous violation, like yeah, we'll fix that. That won't be a problem at all. Yeah. Uh, in the example of like the communicator in uh, in Enterprise or um, or like the piece of the action, how do you think that you're gonna fix something that you already broke? Like it's just gonna get worse. Or on TOS, a private little war when the Klingons are involved. Right. Yeah. Give everybody guns, but give everybody guns. Yeah. So it just it seems to be something that I think. I think it's really like emblematic of I'm glad that it it exists, I guess is what I'm saying, not only for conflict, but I'd hate to think of the sort of Star Trek being the sort of um, Buck Rogers, like 30s or 40s space fantasy where we don't really care. And all the bad guys are just racist analogs for people on Earth. And we're just trying to beat them. Like, I like the fact that it is contemplative and we want to do no harm. But of course, being humans infallible, we're going to do some harm. Yeah. And I think, especially in, in the in the early days, in TOS, the Prime Directive was basically, well, unless Kirk thinks that the way this society works is bad, yeah. then, then <laughs> yeah. they'll interfere. Yeah. Yeah, that's all of his exceptions are, I don't know if it's, it's codified this way or if it's a rule or something, but I know he always interfered when he considered to, it to be a, a dead or a stagnated culture. Uh, yes. Which, that's a judgment call, man. Like, what, there's not enough, like, uh, coffee shops or something like that? Like, yeah. I don't know what his, what his criteria is. But So he'll talk your computer to death and, hey, you're free. You've lost all your infrastructure, but you're free. There are definite parallels between this episode and the TOS episode, The Apple. Yeah, yeah, where he kills their snake god. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, it's also a bunch of people. It's an Edenic sort of society, and they have weird hair, and they're not wearing a lot of clothes. And, yeah, it's very similar. 
Although in that one, they specifically say they don't know anything about sex. Right, yeah, they discover sex, thanks to Chekhov, of all people. Hmm. Well, I think the fact that this is named Justice makes me want to focus more on the fact that it's really about the law, and Picard has to figure out how it applies in this episode. It's really the idea of legislative intent, um, that is, like, what were the framers of the law or statute going for when they initiated it? And as Picard says in the episode, you know, the Prime Directive was never intended for this. It was never set up to be in a situation where, no, I'm sorry, your son must die because our hands are completely tied. Well, I mean, I, I, I feel that they violated the Prime Directive the second they beamed down to the planet. That was the first mistake. Yes. Yeah. They wanted to drop hats, though. And... You know, like a double flogging for Tasha Yar for not asking any questions. Like, like, wow, Security no crime, chief. huh? Cool. Yeah, right. Okay, back to the ship then. I'm not going to investigate that oddity any further. Yeah, you just skimmed those laws. You didn't really look at them, though, did you? Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like the, you know, five-second conversation between her and Riker when it was, I thought you said you checked their laws. Well, I mean, I thought I did. They didn't like, that was it. punishments. On. Yeah, right. <laughs> They, they just said they had no crime. I thought it was cool. Yeah, it, I just assumed it was extra jogging for everyone. Uh, for all the inconsistencies, you have to appreciate how well Trek elucidates the concept of applying the Prime Directive, um, whether or not their choices are right. There's kind of a smell test for every episode. Like when you're watching an episode, I find myself able to easily ID when they violate you know, <laughs> the Prime Directive or when they run into potential issues. Sometimes even when the writers don't seem to know that there's a, an issue there you're kind of like that kind of seems like a prime directive thing yeah the prime directive is something that in theory is an excellent idea um but there are definitely there are plenty of instances in star trek where it is followed and it results in bad things happening because it was followed yeah i also think it signals the shift or them pursuing it and examining it more in tng it it, it starts the shift from the sort of tos era of you know, 60s gunboat diplomacy to the sort of 80s and on era of do we have the right to intervene sort of post-Vietnam, you know. And this is a story, this is a story about tolerating intolerance more than anything. Like, you guys have this weird, crazy idea. That's fine. Do it to your own selves. You know, we don't want it, but, you know, have your own thing. Yeah, I was really concerned. Well, concern's the wrong word, but... Towards the end, when one of the mediators says that, you know, we cannot allow, I'm botching this a little bit, but it was, you know, like, ignorance of the law cannot be an acceptable excuse. Right, right. Okay, but everyone in your society knows the law. Yeah, yeah. So, like, that, you don't need to worry about anyone in your society not knowing the law. Yeah. Because (laughs) even if, for example, they don't know, like, oh, I didn't know that. I'm not allowed to touch this tree on Thursdays. They at least know what the punishment is. Right. And and that and that's the like the key factor that the Enterprise crew didn't know. It's it's kind of for me it's sort of like a scantily clad twist on the Plato's Ring of Gyges, like the question if it's if goodness comes from some sort of just desire to be good or if it comes from the threat of being punished you know is that what makes people behave and i feel like it's funny you mentioned um the mediator like once execution is on the table i feel like they start whipping it out for everything like as soon as the crew wants to interfere they have to die 
but <laughs> is this a punishment area uh, area is this a purge situation like can you well we were lucky the punishment area moved or... <laughs> no immediately after yeah. he fell through maybe it's just a one a day because they even say that like yeah. the, you all would have to die now too for interfering that, would, that seemed like a late addition somebody's like wait a minute shouldn't they just get shot down couldn't anybody just do whatever they wanted and just take take their chances that they weren't in the kill zone for that day that's exactly what I was wondering when they were talking yeah. about like and there are random punishment zones I'm like so so you're saying that 99% of the planet is a punishment free zone yeah so Apparently. I have a 99 and 100 chance of not getting punished those are really great odds yeah those are excellent odds you can roll the dice on that purge uh, pretty well I'd like to imagine that there's like a, a subclass of Edo that they have access to like the schedule of where the zones will be and they're just running roughshod on the planet. <laughs> oh no, no, even easier than that. Like the mediators only patrol the zones, so you just keep tabs on where the mediators are and then just not be there. Is it just the two guys? They have a lot of ground I mean, to cover. I, I don't care if there's 22 guys or 122 guys. They're like, still only going to all be in like the punishment zone. Plus they have to run to catch you and these they're all pretty good runners. Mm. If anybody ever invents a bicycle, they are above the law. Oh, that's a good point. <laughs> what did you guys think of Picard's solution or non-solution, as the uh, case may be? It was a bit of a cop-out. Yeah. I like the fact that the guy on the planet, like 20 minutes into the show, he just tells them what to do. He's like, why don't you just beam out of here and we'll just call it good. And then, you know, it's not great pacing for a TV drama. We have to sit around and wait for him to do the exact thing that the antagonist told him to do. Yeah, and it makes sense for him to do that, because at that point, he's just like, okay, I'm done arguing with you people about this. Just, yeah. I was really confused by Leator's suggestion, because, like, on the one hand, it's the sort of thing that someone who would, like, pull you aside and say, listen, okay, I get it. Like, our law works for us. We forgot to tell you about it, but there's nothing in our law for not telling you about the law. I right. feel bad. How about you just secret your guy away? But he said it out loud in front of everyone. Right, right. They're like in the middle of his other conversation. I think that's a cultural thing, though, because they don't do secrets. Yeah, but like in the middle of his other conversation about like, well, clearly, I guess we're not like we are not as advanced as these people are. Yeah, like, I like there's how just like <laughs> they get like, so I can't petulant. tell these. Yeah, I can't tell these. Like, <laughs> is he being sarcastic? Like what's going on here like what is up with this writing what is up with everyone's delivery of every single one of their lines yeah i'm not sure if it's the writing or the delivery but that's a good point because he is so pissy about it but then ravon is so and you know we love justice i mean if if you guys love that it doesn't seem like she's trying to like dig at the crew for like being this lawless society but yeah there is definitely uh two different sort of uh, positions there in their delivery a little bit yeah why couldn't they just code of honor it? I mean, not create a sci-fi televised hate crime, but I mean, like, let <laughs> Wesley get poisoned, go, that's, that's a sad end, and then, like, beam him up to the ship and just give him the antidote. They've got a sample of it. Oh, that's a good point. They gave it back. <laughs> oh, they gave it back. That's not going to work. Yeah. Here's a what if for you. What if this was the whole of TNG? I mean, this is the first season of TNG. It's got a reputation of being kind of rough. Uh, you know, it gets better. I think a lot of it is down to Trek, you know, trying to be a 60s show still in the 80s. I mean, half the scripts are recycled from TOS or Phase 2. But what if this went on like this for somehow for another six, seven seasons? Like, do you think people would still remember it? Would it have succeeded? 
That's an interesting question. Yeah, I, I think that if it had gone on for six or seven more seasons, there would be no DS9. I think that would have yeah. been... <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think there would be any more Trek after that. So then it would just be like, people would still remember uh, TOS, because even at the time that TNG came out, there was like a solid following to TOS. Yeah. But And then they would remember like, oh, remember when they tried to make TOS 2? <laughs> yeah. Also, I'm wondering, would Star Trek Six have even been made? Um, any of the movies, or, or Star Trek Six specifically? Star Trek Six specifically, because when TNG started, we already were up. The force, the first four had already come out. Yeah, yeah. And Star Trek Five came out during TNG season two. Right. So if T- T- TNG had kept that season one, season two vibe, and obviously Star Trek Five was not a success. No. Uh, and T- and if TMG had not become a success, would would there would that have like ended the franchise right there? Would we have even had a sixth Star Trek movie? We would. It would just be James Kirk and in one side a corner and Jesus Christ in the other and ring the bell and let's do this thing. <laughs> we get another godlike alien in this thing. What is Gene Roddenberry's obsession with punching Jesus? To be fair, this is pre-Star Trek Five, And this Jesus punched back. Yes. Yes. <laughs> but specific, Data says specifically he uses the term God thing, which of course puts me in the mind of Gene's, you know, failed yes. movie pitch. Yeah. yeah. Which is the pretty much the same thing as motion picture, where there's this weird entity that's threatening Earth, and we find out that it's behind all of the major religions, and Jesus appears on the bridge and gets in a fight with Captain Kirk. So we get that again, kind of, in this episode. Wait, this episode... hold on. Wait, wait, wait. That happened in motion picture? No, I'm No. That it was, was the... supposed to happen in the yeah. original oh, plan. Oh, oh, okay. No. I've only no, seen motion, motion picture, picture once. Motion picture wasn't nearly exciting pretty... enough for that to happen. <laughs> exactly. I'm pretty sure I fell asleep halfway through <laughs> the opening crawl. I Yeah, well, you might have missed it then. But no, no, unfortunately, it didn't happen. But we get something... Kind of like that. This episode, if anything, tries to do so much because it's got uh, the legal questions. It's got the prime directive. It's trying to explore sexuality. And I want to double back on that in a little bit. And then, of course, it's got to take on religion. And maybe it's too much. Well, it's basically saying straight up that their religion is fake because they're worshiping a alien species. Yeah. And they don't even give it a goony name. Like They just call it God. Yeah. Why would that make their religion fake? Because they worship aliens. Because they're not yeah. actually gods. What, you're thinking about like the prophets. Well, no, yeah, I mean, I, I'm too. just. Well, I mean, I'm just thinking like people can make a religion about whatever they want. They can worship. They can worship pocket lint. That doesn't make it fake. Okay. Yeah. All right. They, I guess they, they, they there worship. Are dozens of us. Fake is <laughs> they, they, not they, necessarily they, the right word. They worship nigh omnipotent sky beings. Or sky being. I don't know. Like, Data said that it was like, I, I think Data had said that was like, there's definitely like more than one of them, but it, it seemed like they sort of like form like a, a collective. Mind. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, like, it, so that's what they give homage to and worship, but like, we don't ever see like worship services, just that they hold them in great respect and fear. Right, and they get to screw and walk on their hands all day, so that's fun. Uh, right, so like, I wouldn't call their religion fake just because it turns out it was aliens and not an actual. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. 
Guys, don't fight. I don't want to break up the Stargate Weekly podcast or the Delta Flyer podcast. It's an invisible, it's an invisible, omnipotent being that lives in the sky. I mean, what else would you call God? <laughs> Touche. If, any, <laughs> if anything, it's just on the nose writing. Yeah. Yeah, well, no, exactly. Like it's... <laughs> it's one topic that comes up on this show a lot is what I feel is the very retarded sexuality of Star Trek. Whenever Trek tries to do sex, it's like this guy doesn't get laid. You know what I mean? Like all these scripts, <laughs> at least in the early days, were written by Horny Gene Roddenberry, but there's no yes. excuse. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, this was Gene Roddenberry there's all no, over this. <laughs> there's no excuse for it to continue as long as it has. And I did sort of feel, and maybe this is a modern reading, but I felt like there was a little a little bit of sexual agency um, from the women of the crew, uh, which is somewhat progressive. Like when Riker sees the people coming in and he's like, oh, they're so fit. And Troy says, yeah, they certainly are. I thought I saw a little like, okay, you get it, girl. Like she was kind of into it, too. Um, I don't know if that's just like my reading or she's supposed to be like you would see normally. Well, you definitely see that um, Troy in particular uh, does. I mean, she she's not quite, you know, to Riker's level. Right. But throughout the show, she definitely has her fair share of suitors. Do you guys um, do you miss Yar? I feel like I would if she had stuck around longer for us to know her better. Yeah. Hmm. I also feel like Worf had basically nothing to do until he took over. Oh, yeah. Her dying is the best thing to happen to Michael Doran, for sure. Yeah. Just for the fact that if she had been on for more than one season, just by the nature of the medium, she would have become more consistent. Like her character is just sort of all over the place. Although I did like in this episode, she does screw up the laws thing. But there's the infamous, you know, they make love at the drop of a hat thing, which didn't make any sense to me as a kid. And honestly, it still doesn't make any sense. But Jordy says it like he they got don't a... wear hats. Yeah, there are no hats. <laughs> I don't get it. Uh, jo- Jordy says he says that like he got a free sample of some hat dropping. Uh, and then Yar's like, yeah, any hat. And I got the impression that she did, too. Like they both yes, went down. That there was and sort the of impression I took. Yeah, I got from that. Yeah. So yeah, there's... but apparently Riker and of course... didn't because oh no, he did. <laughs> no, he no, no. Under the bridge with a with a big grin on his face. Well, that well that well that is that that is future Riker's grin <laughs> translating back through time. <laughs> but well, because think about like when they get down, back down to the planet, and and Reven is like, well, perhaps we could play, and Riker's like, play, as if he hadn't yet. Mm. Well, no, I think Riker's just always ready to play. Well, of course he's always ready to play, but like how he said it, et cetera, et cetera, made it seem like he hadn't yet had a chance to play with the Edo. I can see that. I also like I like his going back in time. Relativistic Grin is my band name, I think. <laughs> I just have trouble with the concept of the crew going down and everyone getting laid except Riker. <laughs> That's conflict. Yeah. I, I like the fact that Ador are weird, and I guess there's so many things. I mean, how much time do I want to spend on this mentally? But there are so many interesting aspects of their culture that I do want to hear about outside of the, the naked jumping jacks or whatever. But I like the fact that they have uncrossable lines. Like, there's the part where they're hugging everybody, and they're making eyes, and then uh, they the Wes is there, and, and she's like, um, well, I think we've got a box of board games or something around here somewhere. Yeah. Like, they're not into the kid thing. They jog absolutely everywhere, and I have to wonder if there are a lot of angry agent calls uh, on this one. 
a lot of oh, act- a lot yeah. of actors saying the extras who are like I'm not jogging. Yeah, my nipples are out here. They've got me running for twelve hours a day. Well, I mean, yeah, for those the... outfits cannot be comfortable for jogging. No, they can't be comfortable for anything. Well, yes, but but there's no support in them. No, no, absolutely none. Because there's a lot of jiggling happening in this episode. Yeah. Then the costumes, of course, are by Bill Thies, and Thies is famous for his uh, Thies titillation theory. But mm-hmm. it seems like accidents were probably pretty likely on the set, and whatever they saved on fabric, they lost on double-sided tape. And <laughs> I'm sure that Gene Roddenberry was hanging around for all of these shots. <laughs> maybe. Yeah, maybe. If uh, Leonard Maislish, his lawyer, would let him go to set. That's true. Yeah. Uh, I got a crackpot theory I want to throw out in front of you. Um, Excellent. Do you think that this episode is, or was intended, or is even an unintentional metaphor for AIDS? Um, This is the middle of the 80s. You know, Kirk would drop all the hats here, but in the 80s, just having random sex is a different story. And, you know, the first time that Reagan even spoke publicly about AIDS was in 1987. So the idea that you've got this pleasure planet... But being, you know, it, it, you, death can strike randomly. You know, being blissfully unaware or ignorant won't protect you. What do you think? I hadn't even considered that, but that's certainly technically, that's certainly possible. I don't think it was, but it's certainly possible. Yeah. I mean, they they wouldn't let David Gerald write his AIDS show, then I'm sure this probably wasn't right. intentionally that. Yeah, the, the Star Trek didn't actually go with the go with the AIDS allegory until much later on Enterprise. Yeah. How in your face would TNG get in the early seasons with, this is the parable, this, this is what we're trying to tell you? Reasonably. Reasonably. Okay, in that case, then, no, it's it's probably not a, it's a parable, because, you know, if, if Thad season Star Trek Watcher didn't pick up on an AIDS parable, then it probably was not there. Well, yeah. I mean, that doesn't mean I don't pick up on it. I don't know. Like, well, I mean, like, maybe it would have been more obvious 30 years ago. So, there's an episode of season one, I don't remember which one, um, but Picard and Data are on the bridge, and Data is talking about how he doesn't understand war, and Picard is talking about how, yeah, you know, funnily enough, on Earth, they used to fight war over such ridiculous things as economic concept differences. Right. Or economic system differences, and it's like, yeah, wow. So, no, they were not... (laughs) I'm put in the mind, too, of symbiosis, where you've got the guys in overalls yeah. who are oh, shooting up, yeah. and these guys are junkies, yeah. And, of course, uh, one of those actors, uh, I'm I, blanking on his name now, but he played uh, David Marcus in Star Trek Two. Merrick uh, Patrick, yeah. Yeah, he, not long after that episode, did actually die of AIDS. Yeah. So it was definitely in their world, I mean, it was on their mind, but this is kind of a thought I had. Um. As a first season episode, as you mentioned way at the beginning of the episode, the lighting is different. And I noticed that a lot of the production values in this episode are far below where Trek usually sits. Like, I don't remember the first season being particularly bad. It's not like Garth Marenghi level, but there's some really bad sort of setups in this. Um, there's a part where they bring Rivon up to the ship and they're walking down the hallway and her wig's coming off. Like, her Halloween store wig is just coming off and you can see her actual hair under it. There was, like, trash on the floor when she was kneeling too. Oh really? I didn't see yes. that. Was it like like a mark, like a tape mark, or it was just like a piece of paper or something? A sprite yeah. can? Okay. No, no, it was like a <laughs> it was like a piece of paper on the floor. There's a there's a part where um, it's after 
Picard's talking to Data and they figure everything out and Crusher comes in they go all right let's go get your son and they walk out and the door partially closes it closes about an inch and a half uh, yeah. like too early and then they walk out and it actually closes and they used the sounds <laughs> to make it seem like that was supposed to happen like there's a little half shh before it full shh but that wasn't supposed to happen come on well I mean as I was watching it it definitely looked like they didn't walk out side by side there was a brief gap as they crossed the threshold right so it almost sort of works yeah but for doors that can tell when your conversation is over I mean come on read the room yeah. <laughs> All right. So I just like I just scrubbed through the video, and yes, it could be a mark because it was pretty much right where she was kneeling. There's like a little white thing on the floor, like a little piece of tape or something. Okay. So it could have been a mark, but obviously that still shouldn't have been in the shot. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we could put it down to Conway as maybe being first time director, but it just seems, and they definitely get a lot better uh, production wise as they go. But I guess it's a new show. Yeah. Ultimately, one of the things I really like about this episode and about the good stories in Gene-era Trek is that he, he always writes these stories about humanity being tested or judged and then passing the test. But I like that the fact that the twist of we're being judged on our own standards and not, say, the capricious standards of a Q or a Trelane. Like, it's basically this, whatever this thing is in the sky, it really cares about laws and about propriety and it's going to get us if we break sort of our own rules. We don't have to have the same rules, but if we show ourselves to be double dealing by our own standard, then that's when the problem starts. It's felt like the whole, yes. And I, I like that argument. And then it just, it all sort of falls apart at the, at the very end when Picard's like, yeah, but let's just make an exception this time. And they're like, okay, <laughs> right. It's fine. Yeah. I just feel like it resolved way too easily, especially after they built up how it was almost impossible to resolve. Yeah, the speech to the sky is not a good way to end your episode. Yeah, it, it did just end, and it felt really weird. Yeah. Yes. Uh, it's also the first of uh, several times that Picard brings somebody onto the ship, um, a alien who is not as advanced, and like shows them their planet. He does this... A couple more times, and he does it in first contact uh, to mm -hmm. Lily as well. It's kind uh -huh. of like his move to go like, no, no, the stakes are bigger than you think they are. Which, if you're doing a list of prime directive violations, that's got to be at the top of the list. Don't show somebody their planet if they don't know that space exists. Yeah. Well, I mean, even if they do, like, even if they do know space space exists, don't bring someone up onto your warp capable right. vessel. Yeah. If they don't have warp yet. Right, don't show them that. Yeah, don't show them the hot chocolate machines. And uh, yeah, remember the Paul Servino episode where he puts a bunch of people on a holodeck and moves them to like a different planet? Yeah. It's funny because all the research that I've done says that the first, uh, the first Amendment, the Prime Directive only applies to Starfleet officers. It has no conditions. And for... he wasn't a Starfleet officer, right. so he should have been able to do whatever he wanted. Well, um, technically... Um, it's like in Angel One, like those guys who go to Angel One, they're just like, I don't know, they're merchant marines or something like that. I don't think they're Starfleet officers. And so when Starfleet's like, no, no, you got to go, they're like, well, we can just do whatever we want. It doesn't, we're not Starfleet officers, so it doesn't apply to us. It seems like you could have a really enterprising individual, ding, uh, <laughs> could really ruin things for a lot of people if they decided to kind of go out on their own. That's yeah, a good I, point. I, I'd be interested in seeing those stories. Of... We've got one in the um, when the Ferengi who were trapped 
uh, beyond the wormhole in the Delta Quadrant. Yep, we'll have that next season in Voyager. Uh, what's it called? False Prophets? Yes, False Prophets. False prophets. prophets with an F. Yes. I say next season because we're currently in season two. Oh, okay. <laughs> yes. We'll look forward to that. Uh, is there, if you had to pick one moment that really stood out for you, a scene, a moment, a character, an exchange, uh, what, what would it be? For some reason, I'm from Starfleet. We don't lie. Yeah. It's like ingrained <laughs> in my head. Like, that's like the one line I remembered from this episode before I watched it for this podcast. Right. <laughs> Stuart? Uh, my, mine's also uh, a Wesley-related moment. Okay. Um, <laughs> when Riker tries to call the ship the first time, and he can't get through. Right. And, and that's when he goes up to Worf. He's like, I think we should all... Yeah, we should gather up together again. Um, he says to Troy, I can't reach our ship instead of I can't reach Enterprise. So that jumped out at me. Weird. And then it was, Wesley has wandered off. It's like, you were there. No. <laughs> right. I was like, you watched him wander off, dude. You right. told him to. <laughs> like, <laughs> what? It, it, it's not like, like you turned around and he disappeared. You watched him leave. Right. I also thought it was weird um, when Crusher hails Picard and she says CMO Crusher here. Yeah, I don't think yes. they ever repeat that. Yeah, no, like their radio protocols in this episode were ridiculous. Like it was always Enterprise from away team. It's like no, 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 no. Yeah, it might have yeah. to do with the fact that it was written extremely early, but just was yeah. produced late. Yeah, and you know, and, and you know, <laughs> come in, Captain. This is CMO Crusher. Right. It's like, you know, just uh, yeah. Crusher to Captain. I also like the idea that Worf has been watching this show because as soon as uh, these half-naked people are explaining how they'll put you to death for stepping on flowers, he's like, we got to find Wesley. we got to get Wesley right now. I thought, yeah, the fact that, why would you assume that Wesley's going to break the law? <laughs> right. I mean, Because yeah. well, he's the only one not in the room at the time. Also, so it's like, we need to get eyes on Wesley. So Wesley... <laughs> clearly breaks the glass tramples the flowers and yeah. he's like it's okay i'm all right he at no point says i'm sorry for doing this right even yeah. after like they come up and like arrest him yeah at no point does he apologize for destruction of property yeah, right no, you're right he didn't let's kill him we... <laughs> <laughs> we don't lie and we don't garden we don't do those two things <laughs> I really liked, this is probably maybe my favorite uh, sort of comedy bit, but it's it's really forced and it really marginalizes Crusher, a grieving mother, but I did like the data sort of bit for this episode with the whole babble thing. Like we've Motherhood got... is not an emotion. <laughs> yeah, I suppose that's true. I suppose that, let's further marginalize her, but, uh, but I did like that setup. There's a lot of those when we're figuring out what data is. And we've got the thing, he, he babbles, and then Picard asks him a probing question, <laughs> the look on his face when he's like, I'm doing I'm not going to say anything, I'm not doing anything. And he's like, yeah, that was good. Uh, okay, all right, you can say something. And then later, when he, when he comes in later, he's like, what level of communication would you like from me? And Picard realizes, like, I've totally messed up this robot now, <laughs> I'm going to have to just delete everything and go back. Early Data was, had a lot of scenes like that. Uh, and, and yeah, it is pretty good. Because um, Brent Spiner is very good at comedic things like that oh absolutely but i i just thought it was really weird when picard explains to data what's going on that wesley has been sentenced to death data then says really the emotion of motherhood and i'm just like <laughs> since when is that an emotion 
He's obsessed with emotions. Yeah, sure, but even I even ones think... that aren't emotions, even fake emotions. Yeah. <laughs> I also liked when uh, the Edo God is approaching the ship uh, because they've taken one of Ravon off the planet, and he sticks the communicator on it, and then he's like, "Transporter room, beaver down, do it! Come on, come on, do it, do it, do it!" As so, they're doing it, he's still telling. Yeah, them he's to do still it. yelling yes. about it. Yeah. Well, as we uh, start to wrap up here, did you guys have any last thoughts? Anything that's unsaid about this episode, Justice? Uh, yeah, I've got two. Sure. One is, yes, Thad, you are right. Her eyes are quite black. <laughs> I had not noticed it because I had never watched it in the you know new and improved uh, high-res version. And two, Crusher just got walked all over over this episode. Yeah, sure. And what the hell? Yeah, this is really the um the ground zero for the whole my son kind of thing. But to be fair, her son is going to be put to death here. Yeah, I think she has a perfectly logical reaction to Oh, yeah, no, but you know, it's like you know, Kathy, expected. Maybe logical may be wrong, the wrong emotion thing, but personal perfectly yeah. Yeah, her her, you know, her emotion of motherhood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but you know when she comes up, he's like, you know, "Captain, I need to talk to you." He's like, "No, in a moment." Uh, and he totally like, shuts up in a moment. I know. Like, I know that the original characterization of Picard is that he's not comfortable around children, but they really, they really step on that. Season one, Picard is a very grouchy man. Yeah, he's definitely he's he's got no time for any of this stuff. And I did like the the one line where uh, they're talk they they can't figure out what this thing is, and he's like. Come on, where's the science? When did everything become something and whatever? Yeah, I, I like to imagine that in an alternate reality, Picard is an English teacher trying to <laughs> like trying to convince a bunch of tenth graders on how to actually, you know, write words, improve your vocabulary. Yes, where yes. the adverbs. One other note I had was uh, that Picard has the pretty profound question of how would you describe God? The spaceship in the sky. Yeah, apparently. Yeah. Well, but we know, what yeah, does he, God need with a starship? Yeah, he does have a spaceship. <laughs> we know that. Yeah, so he can like zoom in close to intimidate you. <laughs> yeah, just get really close. I wonder if something something must have happened a long time ago, like in their lore. Like at this this God shows up, I guess, and says, "Okay, you can do whatever you want, but you just have to kill somebody if they step on flowers or whatever." And they must have been like, "No, forget that." And then he must have like done something that somehow echoed down through the generations because they are so fearful of it. And like you pointed out, Stuart, they don't worship, they don't show any, you know, kind of reverence other than, I mean, they show reverence, but there isn't any kind of like practice to their worship. So there must be something ingrained in them that's like, we don't screw around. Like whatever the God says, we do. Yeah, yeah. maybe like the, maybe the Godship dropped them off and like went off to check out other things in the local sector or whatever and, and they, they ran came to back when he right no you know they came back and they're like whoa 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 I dropped you on paradise and what are you doing you're 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 just pooping all over the place wow. so just started like smiting people from that's space that's real old testament yeah and the eater are like wait hold on maybe the god is telling us that if we do anything wrong we need to kill the wrongdoer right well in the eye for an and, eye tradition yeah. this planet should be called Eden two then or something yeah mm. don't think too hard about that. <laughs> Well, let's talk My Space Dad Can Beat Up Your Space Dads. Who are your favorite captains and why? Uh, Thad. My favorite captain is Janeway. Excellent. 
So Picard is my second favorite, um, not because of this episode, but uh, <laughs> I think that Janeway in particular is has the command presence that some of the other captains don't always have. I think that Janeway shows time and again that she will that her first duty is to her crew and keeping them safe. Yeah. I I think that she balances the being the captain who's separate from the crew and also being consider showing that the crew are in a way her family uh in ways that well Picard doesn't. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I uh, Cisco uh makes a lot of questionable choices. Uh, Janeway does some, but not as much as Cisco, and certainly not as much as Archer. Right. Uh, oh, so, boy, Archer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Is that your pick, Stu, Archer? Uh, no, actually, oh. it's Lorca. <laughs> okay. Interesting. So you've heard the term peacetime and wartime consigliere? Yeah, sure. Lorca is a wartime captain. Sure. And it's fitting since Discovery takes place during a war. Yeah. And I feel like even understanding that he's from the Mirror Universe, spoilers for anyone who's listening to this podcast but hasn't watched Discovery. Come on. uh, And I'm sure that if they haven't, they have their own weird reasons. Uh, (laughs) And I'm not going to change their mind. But, like, Lorca's reasoning... Like I was always like I was always like I, I was with him, you know. Yeah. He he gave his reasons for why he was doing things. It's like, okay, okay. Right. You know, a couple of times, you know, b- behind closed doors, like like when he was with um, his old friend. Her name escapes me. Uh, Admiral Cornwall. Yes, and like and he had let through, you know, let let slip through, right? That he wasn't who he said he was. Like and those those weren't so great. But the rest of the time, it's like, yeah, okay. Like, I- I'm with this guy. You know, close runner-up is also Janeway sure. uh, for all, all the reasons that, that Thad laid out. I, uh, to add to what Thad had said about Janeway, though, is that I feel like she's one of the only captains we see who is competent at every station. So what do you both think about my theory that Janeway is Kirk perfected as a female? I can see that. Uh, I think, yes, perfected is definitely the right way to say it, though, because I think Janeway is in many ways better than Kirk. Uh, They share a lot of traits, though. They do. Um, Actually, way back when we first started Delta Flyer, when we were talking about Caretaker, I made make a comment um, at the end of Caretaker when as the Caretaker is dying and Janeway says that you that tells him that he should that the Okampa may surprise him. He should let them you know, do their own development. And and, I'm, and I remember commenting on that, that that is something that Kirk would have said. Yeah. As, as you, we, we were talking about earlier, how Kirk was very strongly against any culture that had stagnated. Yeah, absolutely. I think he wanted everybody to have the freedom to pursue, you know, their interests and their ideals uh, the way that he definitely does. Yeah. Well, good. I'm glad that I'm not totally crazy then thinking that. Uh, now that we've reached the end of the show, you will receive a commission and the rank of ensign. What department on the ship do you work in, Stuart? Communications, or uh, no, or stellar cartography, maybe. Stellar cartography, interesting. What about you, Thad? Engineering. 
any specific discipline of engineering? Uh, like, well, basically sort of like O'Brien on DS9 where I just fix all the stuff that breaks. <laughs> just the, the, the gopher. You got to go out and fix whatever's yeah. on the list for the day. Sure, sure. Yeah, he definitely had quite a bit to do. Uh, of course, he was working on a uh, on Cardassian technology, so that required a totally different skill set. Yeah, because even though Belana Torres could completely reprogram a Cardassian computer with her own voice <laughs> on Deep Space Nine, they couldn't, you know, turn it into a Federation computer. Yeah, they couldn't get the replicators to work. Well, Ensign Hollis and Haight, thanks for joining me to talk about Star Trek and the Star Trek universe. If people want to continue the conversation, and they can, at at EISTpod on Twitter and the Enterprising Individuals Facebook page, where can people find you guys online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Gamicus. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Tyrannicus. You can follow our show on Twitter at Delta Flyer Pod. And where can people find Stargate Weekly? At Stargate Weekly. Yes. Dot com? Yes, or we're on Twitter at Stargate Weekly. Uh, our website is StargateWeekly.com. And for Delta Flyer, our website is DeltaFlyerPod.com. Also, both podcasts are available on insert podcast platform here. <laughs> of course. All right, well, thanks again for joining me. Thanks for having us. A lot of fun. We are signing off until the next mission, Hailing Frequencies Closed. So